a reading from the epistles of Ephesians and Colossians. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Colossians 3, 5 through 14. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon us, the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So as those who have been Chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity." So there was a long list there in Colossians of of sins that we were to put off and die to. But not in Colossians, not in Ephesians, not in any other book in the Bible are you going to find a perfect list of the seven deadly sins. And the reason is the list does not exist except in extra-biblical research. All of the research that comes from that is from the Bible And I'll tell you a little bit of the history of how we came to understand this list as the seven deadly sins. As I said earlier, our July and August summer series is going to cover the seven deadly sins, plus an eighth that we believe is well-deserving for being on the list. The purpose of this sermon series is not for you and I to become moral hypochondriacs looking for sins underneath every rock and trying to to figure out everything that's wrong about us. But it is supposed to push us forward into deeper moral reflection in our lives, a life of self-examination. Unless we know what sin is, how can we confess it? Unless we know what it is that we're dealing with, how can we turn from it and use our energies to pursue righteousness? The pursuit of righteousness, not the fleeing of Vice, although that is the beginning, 
The pursuit of righteousness and moral excellence is our primary goal for this series, not an obsession with the sins that entangle us. Contemporary tweetment. (laughs) Tweetment might be more proper since we tweet so much nowadays, right? Uh, But contemporary treatment of the seven deadly sins is hardly what it was supposed to be when they went through the process of determining what these sins were. It developed throughout centuries. Today, people dismiss them, they redefine them, they psychologize them, and we even trivialize them. There was one author who confuses gluttony with feasting in a chapter that he named Great Moments of Gluttony. Well, that's feasting, that's not gluttony. Uh, Robert Solomon, another author, questions why God would even raise an eyebrow about these sins since they barely jiggled the scales of injustice. He lowers them in value, and he says, you know, sloth, he, he speaks as if sloth were nothing more than a, a bloke who can't get out of bed in the morning, which is what he, I don't say bloke, normally that's what he said, bloke. Um, he, he talks about, well, lusts were nothing more than just too many peaks at a playboy. He speaks as if gluttony was nothing more than scarfing down three extra jelly donuts. Do you remember Gordon Gecko from 1987 story, uh, a movie called Wall Street? I know Patrick does. He gave a rousing speech in one of these hostile corporate takeovers and convinced almost everyone there why greed is good. Well, Gordon, it may be American, but it's anything but good. Robin Wasserman is an author, and she wrote a smutty series for teens called The Seven Deadly Sins, Commit Them All. Please do not read this series. None of these mentions of the seven deadly sins, or one of them, none of them are accurately portraying what it is that was originally conceived when these holy men of God came together and strive to understand Christ more and how great he had, how he had delivered us. So there's a little history here. I want to give you a, um, a history lesson that I learned this week. Uh, it was first, uh, the, the, as far back as they can go, they can first find writings of a monk named Evagrius of Pontus back in, the thir- back in the 300s of A.D. He was the first that we can find that had a list of the seven deadly sins. He had a disciple named John Cassian who took it further west and the list evolved from him spending time with it. And then it went over to Pope Gregory I. And then it went on to Thomas Aquinas. Uh, he got in the game as well. The list originally had eight deadly sins. Anybody know that? You already knew that. All of you did. Oh, just me. Um, so it already had eight, but then they changed it back when Gregory and Aquinas got in the game later on because they said instead of having eight, they believed that pride should be the root of all of them. And so they took the one and took, if you notice, pride isn't in the main one. And so they took it as the one that, from which all the others branch out of. And so that's how they came up with seven, is they took pride as the root. We actually have pride in our list because we came up with that before I did that research. And so pride we're going to talk about, but we are adding an eighth, and you'll understand why when we get to that point later in the season. What is meant when we hear the word deadly sin? Seven deadly sins. Aren't all sins deadly? The wages of sin are death. Aren't they all deadly? Well, this is the deadliness of the seven deadly sins refers to a distinction between mortal and venial sins. 
So these people that I aforementioned who came up with this were in Catholic theology. And in the Catholic moral theology, there are mortal sins and there are venial sins. And mortal sins are called this because they cause spiritual death. And what they mean by that is they cut us off from God's grace when we reject the source of our spiritual life. We reject who Christ is or who the Holy Spirit is, and we do these other things. Now, Connection Church, we don't hold to the same teaching in this area as our Catholic brothers and sisters do, as we believe that once a person has been born again into the family of God, that their salvation is secured, not by our faithfulness, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. However, we are going to see that later in tonight's message that that living in a pattern of sinful life and behavior can identify a person as one who never really came to a saving faith to begin with. Aquinas said a deadly sin was this, a sin against the virtue of charity. So to commit a deadly or a mortal sin in his, um, in his view is to lose the grace of the Holy Spirit by rejecting God as one's highest good and refusing to put God and neighbors first in one actions. That decision, he says, shows that one prefers committing the sin. There's a distinction here prefers committing the sin and obtaining whatever good that sin promises as to having a relationship with God. We might agree on a lot of this if there was an understanding of realizing that if we are choosing to do these things that we know that we should not do, and there's no regret, there's no remorse, there's no repentance, then we might agree that there is no salvation involved. We aren't God, we can't see to that, but it's something that we should take very seriously because whether we believe in seven deadly sins or all sins are deadly, which is what the Bible says, all sins are deadly, however we define them, sin does lead to death. And there has to be something to deal with that. One of the things that I noticed this week was that Aquinas argues this. He says that not all acts of vice, which means acting against the seven deadly sins, not all of them are necessarily, or even usually, mortal sins. He says, Many instances of lust and gluttony, for example, seem better explained not by you being a reprobate, but by, be, by weakness and impulsiveness. Then it's more explained by that than by being entrenched or willful or having a willful preference for pleasure over a relationship with God. Although those decisions may lead you to that conclusion over time. So if someone makes poor choices to indulge in these sins, then most of the time, he says, the reason isn't a mortal sin, but it's a lack of discipline. Sometimes maybe ignorance, sometimes weakness, and sometimes just a simple lack of discipline that is yet to be confessed and strengthened by the Spirit of God. So if you feel powerless in one of these areas of, of sin that we'll be talking about throughout the next weeks, the next few weeks, if you feel powerless to overcome that sin, then I want to encourage you by helping you understand that you are powerless over these sins. But the good news is the Lord is not powerless. And we'll have more on that in just a little bit. I'll keep you hanging for a few minutes. From the beginning of the creation of this list, the preferred name has been Principia Vicia, which is Latin for principal vices. And so at this point, we're going to shift our terminology 
And instead of talking about the seven deadly sins, we're going to talk about vices because that's originally what they wanted. Are you interested? This is a question to consider as we dive in. Are you ready? All right. Listen your necks up. Here we go. Are you interested in temporary relief of symptoms or do you want a cure that gets the source of the disease out? The seven deadly sins or the vices, as I mentioned earlier, are roots from which other sins grow. You don't settle for prescribing aspirin to a cancer patient. That's not enough. These seven vices are not the worst possible vices because there's no murder in any of the vices. And they're not even the most frequently done because there's no lying in the vices either. But they are the roots of the vices, of, of sin. It's good to differentiate the difference between differentiate the difference between sin and vice. And so I'll do that now. Sin is, as we understand it, is on a broader scope. And since it, it can include patterns of sinfulness, it can include a fallen condition in general. So a pattern in your life, the fallen condition in general, it can also refer to a single act of disobedience I sinned against you. A vice is more specific. A vice concerns deeply rooted patterns in our character. It's like sledding down a hill. And that first time you go down a sled, it's hard to get down through that rut. I'm not ready for the slide just yet. It's like hard to go down that rut. But once you start making that rut over and over and over, it becomes easier and easier and easier. And so that's what a vice becomes. It becomes more of a, a pattern. But it's more narrow than just our, our big human condition in general. The original preferred term of the, um, the initiators, the originators, the OGs, if you will, of the, of the uh, seven deadly sins is the, was not the word seven deadly sins, but it was vice. And so from this point forward, we're going to be using the word vice as well. And here's what a vice is, right here. A vice is a habit or character trait that is corruptive or destructive to our character. So vices are corruptive and destructive habits. They undermine both the goodness of our character and our living and acting well. They mess up everything good about what God has created. On the other side of vice is virtue, which is where we're heading all this summer. And virtue is this. A virtue is a habit or disposition of character that helps us live well as human beings. So a virtue is required through practice. It's not something you're just born with. Repeated activity that increases our proficiency in an activity or gradually forms our character is what a virtue is. In fact, vices and virtues are both acquired moral qualities. It's not something you're just born with, like an outgoing disposition or a predisposition to high cholesterol. That's not something I'm saying I have that. I have a predisposition toward that. A virtue is I don't have that born within me or vices born within me, but both of these are things that are acquired during our lifetime. So as we talk about turning from vice to virtue, there are practical steps to take. And we'll go back to Ephesians, is where we started earlier. Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, and he talks about, uh, you can put it up, he's talking to them about dying to your old self and walking in the newness. And he says that in reference to your former manner of life, who you used to be before Christ, you lay aside the old self, you put it away, it's gone, it's finished, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of 
your mind. To keep that up there for a second. He's saying the old you was dead. And if you continue to live in the old way, you're going to continue along this path and progress unto death. But he's saying God has given you a newness of life, a new walk with him, a new or, or life in general, but a new brand new life created by him that is renewed in the spirit of your mind. And you need to focus on these things. And so the next verse he says this, and put on the new self. So you have to intentionally put on the new self, which in the likeness of God, the likeness of God is how the new self of us is. In the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. This is who Paul is telling us that we are. This is who you are in Christ Jesus. This is who he has created you to be. This verse shows us that turning from the old way of life of sin and vice and turning to a new life, which in the likeness of God has been created, created by God, in righteousness and holiness of truth. He's saying that we are sanctified, which means that we're set apart. We're set apart. We are holy saints of God when we turn from sin and turn to faith in Jesus as Lord. So if we're struggling with specific sins in our lives, then one of two things are happening. If you're in a pattern of sin, one of two things are happening. Number one, you haven't truly partaken of faith in Jesus. That's option one. Option two is you're weak and impulsive in your faith. And at the risk of being offensive, we need to grow up. Ignorance is not an excuse. We need to become aware of who we are in Christ so we don't continue to wade through the sewers of the old life. Neither of these options are healthy. And the first option leads us to eternal death. So we must learn to walk in virtue like we learn to do everything else in life. This is what Dallas Willard said. He said, a baseball player who expects to excel in the game without adequate exercise of the body is no more ridiculous than the Christian who hopes to be able to act in the manner of Christ when put to the test without the appropriate exercise and godly living. It's ridiculous. If you're not exercising your Christian faith, how are you going to walk as a Christian? Alasdair McIntyre describes a child learning to play chess to illustrate the process of this formation. He says, Imagine that in hopes of teaching an uninterested seven-year-old to play chess, you offer the child candy. One piece of candy to play, another piece of candy if the child wins the game. Motivated by his sweet tooth, the child agrees. At first he plays for the candy alone, and he will cheat to win in order to get that candy. But the more the child plays, the better at chess he gets. And the better at chess he gets, the more he enjoys the game, eventually coming to enjoy the game for itself. At this point in the process, he is no longer playing for the candy. Now the child is playing because he enjoys chess and he wants to play well. And he understands both the intrinsic value of the game and how cheating will rob him of that intrinsic value. He has become a chess player. Moral formation in virtue works much the same way, he says. We often need external incentives and sanctions to get us through the initial stages of the process when our old entrenched desires still pull us toward the opposite behavior. But with encouragement, discipline, 
and often a role model or mentor, practice can make things feel more natural and enjoyable as we gradually develop the internal values and desires corresponding to our at-word behavior. This sounds sometimes anti-gospel because change comes from the inside out. But sometimes for that inward change to take practical steps toward the outside, we have to force ourselves to take practical steps on the outside so that the inside can give us the strength to change on the outside. Virtue often develops from the outside in because we learn how to do things that feel wrong. This is why we want to reform our character from vice to virtue. We often need to practice and persevere in regular spiritual disciplines and formational practices for a lengthy period of time. And there's no quick or easy solution for daily or or substitute, excuse me, for daily repetition over the long haul. So it's a lot of work. And there's a a prescription I have for you here on uh, on a slide here, a four step prescription. And it works out like this. Pin it, I, I changed them all to P so you could maybe remember them better but, and write them down quickly. But pin it, plan it, profess it, and promise it. And I'll talk about what that means quickly. The first one is pin it. Write it down, whatever it is that you're struggling with. Put it down. Pray through it. Pin it. The second one is plan it. Develop a daily plan in your life over the course of one month. I'm not talking about a whole year, but one month. What am I going to change for this one month to do practical steps in order to fight against this lust or envy or greed or whatever it is in my life that I'm struggling with? What am I going to do to proactively create new daily habits? We were at the, um, the cloisters yesterday as a family, and there was one of the, you know, the cloisters is a, is a remake of a place where a monastery, where monks were, and there was a small little book about that big, and the monk carried it around his pocket. It's called the, the Daily Hours, or the Book of Hours is what it's called. And, and it reminded me, wow, he carries something small in his pocket so he can just pull it out every three hours or, or less and just read it all the time. I'm like, what do I have in my pocket that I pull out every so often to check every, at least every three hours? I'm like, my phone. And I was like, man, I need to get a small book, you know, to remind myself to, to make practical steps, something that has me trusting in the Lord more than I trust in my phone. Develop a plan. The third one is share it with a friend. So profess it. This means tell people about it. Hey, I've got a plan, and I want you to encourage me along this process, and I want you to to hold me accountable. Ask me how I'm doing with it and encourage me because I need your help. I want to change. And the fourth one is promise it. And this doesn't mean what you might think. This means promise it, which means find the promises in the Bible where God tells you who you are, and you claim his promises for who you are. I am a holy chosen child of God. I am not someone powerless. I am not a slave to fear. I am a child of God. Family, friends, church family, co-workers, all of these people influence the development of our character. They're putting into us. We need people to support us in our endeavor to change. Otherwise, it's likely not going to happen. So don't try this alone. So that's some encouragement for you. It won't always be an uphill battle. The good news about virtue is this. Your work and God's grace is going to reform your character, and it's going to reform your habits. Vices and virtues can get to the point 
where they feel perfectly natural. It's just who you are. Aristotle says there is a difference between acting according to virtue, which is an external standard which tells us what we ought to do, whether we feel like it or not, and acting from virtue, from the internalized disposition which naturally yields the corresponding action to that feeling. So he says the person that acts from virtue performs actions that fit seamlessly with his or her inward character. And so the telltale sign of virtue is doing the right thing with a sense of peace and pleasure. Not because you have to. And so the question he asks is this, what feels like second nature to you? What feels natural to you? The answer to that are the marks of your character. If you're consistently struggling against sin, then that is the mark of your character. And God says through discipline and through trusting in God's grace, that fight against sin can turn into a pursuit of righteousness from a new disposition from within you. If wrath and envy or any of the vices are second nature to you, then there is a lot of work, but there's a lot of hope for you. And if the virtues are second nature to you, first of all, congratulations, you're on the right path. But then you can strengthen them as the more throughout this season of looking at vices, you discover that these vices may not be as outwardly functioning in your life, but they have a way of blinding us. They have a way of of hiding in the depths and the crevices of our heart and our character, and they're just waiting in the dark for their opportunistic time to jump out and make themselves known. Augustine said, uh, My sin was this, that I looked for pleasure, beauty, and truth, not in God, but in myself and in his other creatures. And that search led me to pain, confusion, and error. And so today, know that pursuing God for everything is the first step in victory over vice. When we pursue the Lord and His beauty and His truth and we find our pleasure in Him, then we've taken that first step in turning the corner from vice to virtue. The seven deadly sins are not just... Um, appealing or church words that only attract people inside the church, but there's something about them that is attractive to our entire culture around us. There was a movie with Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman several years ago called Seven, and it was a dark movie that went through all seven of the deadly sins. There's a fascination within our world about them. In fact, Uh, I I believe that most people recognize in this list of vices that they have the ability to powerfully articulate distortions of deep human desires that we have. They're the distortions of the things that are good. In the ancient philosophical schools, uh, they understood this. In fact, you probably know the phrase from ancient Greek philosophers, Know thyself. It's all over. It's not just them now, but it's everywhere. And our contemporary therapeutic culture also knows that humans seem to yearn to understand themselves better. 
We want to understand ourselves better. The Greek philosophers back then and our culture today says, look within yourself and find the cure. But the gospel truth is there isn't anything within us that will redeem our brokenness. There's nothing within us that will destroy that propensity to sin. When we look within ourselves deep enough, on our own, what we'll see are vices. We'll see sin. We see sinfulness, and when we do that, we must look outside of ourselves and find that God has done something for us that we desperately need, that he's given us a savior. He's given us someone to come and rescue us. The God of creation, the God whom we have rejected, has moved into our lives and become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. A hopeless gospel a false gospel would be, look within yourself, discover who you are, and be true to yourself. That leads to more brokenness. A truth gospel of God says, look within yourself and realize it's not good. But then look to the beauty of God and see what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. And that's very clearly seen in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, when Paul is writing here. He says, He made him, and him refers to Christ, He made Christ, who knew no sin, he had no sin in his life, he made him to be sin on whose behalf? Ours. Say ours. On our behalf, so that we might become boring Christians in the 21st century. That's not what it says, is it? There's an exciting revelation here. Jesus became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We are not to live in the world of vices. While we don't have the answer to God within us on our own, God has sent the answer to live among us. And through our faith in Christ, God's Holy Spirit then comes to make his dwelling place within us. And we become children of God. No longer slaves to sin, no longer slaves to fear, but we become children of God. The righteousness of God becomes us. So if that's who we are, why can't we just focus on that and not worry about these vices over here? Let's just focus on the the truths only of who God says we are. Because here's why. There's an enemy out there and there's a war going on. And the more we know about our enemy the better prepared we will be. Cassian's monks, who was the disciple, uh, the first disciple uh, who was going through this, he answered this question. He said, why is it that we need to know vices and their remedies? And he said this. He says, looking at their struggles as in a mirror and having been taught the causes of and the remedies for the vices by which they are troubled, they, the people, will also learn about future contests before they occur. You're going to find out about these things that are going to happen. You may not struggle with lust today or greed today or envy today, but one day it's going to somehow rear its ugly head and you're going to have to deal with it. And he's saying you're going to learn about future contests before they ever occur. And they, you, the people, will be instructed as to how they should watch out for them and meet them, not run from them, but meet them, which may be running against them, running from them, but then fight them. 
And so that's what we're going to do as we pursue the virtues, is we're going to see how to watch out for them, to meet them, and to fight them. When we look and we study at the vices, what we do is we prepare ourselves to face them. To face the war that is happening within us and the war that's happening in the world. We will be prepared and we will be victorious if we will focus on Christ. The biggest thing to remember is that you already have the victory. And the first step to taking that road to victory is to turn from vice to virtue. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for your goodness uh, that shows us in, in clarity that there are vices that are within our framework, within our souls that still try to, uh, to come out and we still war against them. And so I pray that we would become powerfully uh, transformed by you in a way that we would understand what these things are, how we can fight them, how we can find freedom from them, and so that we would be a virtuous people who would pursue your righteousness and pursue you uh, as our pleasure in a, in a city that is filled with endless pleasures that leave us thirsty and wanting more. God, you give us the type of pleasures that fill us and make us more human than we've ever been. So Lord, I pray that you would encourage us today that through Christ we have hope and we have victory. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.